Himalayas Studios. What has working in audio taught you? If you can get rid of that camera, it's a lot easier. (laughs) (laughs) Mark Smerling knows what it's like to dive deep into the darkest moments of people's lives. He's done it a lot as a documentarian and as a podcaster. If I sit across from you with a little mic in my hand and I'm back and forthing, very quickly that mic disappears. And we're having a really good conversation. Hmm. Now, imagine you're sitting across from me and there's lights blaring in your face and you've got to sit upright and behind me over my shoulder or even worse, you're looking at a screen of me. There's all this equipment and people. When I talk about intimacy in podcasting, that it's coming in your ear. You know, it's it's very intimate, the experience of listening to a good story-based podcast. Yeah. It's also intimate on the other side when you're interviewing somebody. You're closer and you're more free to forget that what you're doing is making a piece of storytelling for audio presentation. From Elias Studios, this is Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. This week, Behind the Lens and the mic with true crime legend Mark Smerling. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Alliest has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Mark Smerling is a documentary veteran. He's made feature-length docs like Capturing the Freedmans, which earned him an Academy Award nomination. And he's also made some of the buzziest true crime TV series of the last decade including The Jinx, which tells the story of real estate mogul Robert Durst, who was accused and acquitted of murder. Mark and his team, including fellow writers Andrew Jarecki and Zach Stewart-Pontier, were so thorough in their reporting that they uncovered evidence that led to Durst's arrest and a new trial, including this damning and now iconic piece of audio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kill them all, of course. Well, the real reason I love doing podcasts is because of found audio. You know, mm. I'm always looking for it. So there's some trials that are recorded in video, and there's some things that you can get in video, but there's almost always audio. When we made the Jinx, we were able to find audio tapes that were kept by the transcriber of the Galveston trial in the bottom of a file box Hmm. that was in his garage. All of a sudden, we had these audio tapes. 
and you could be in that space. That would have worked great for a podcast, too. In 2016, Mark and Zach joined forces with Gimlet Media to release Crime Town, which became one of the most downloaded podcasts of all time. So what can podcasting do for you that TV or film can't? Audio is so intimate compared to television. It's literally in your ear. So you're listening and you're making relationships based on just the intimacy you're having with the tape, as opposed to what you're talking about, which is you're seeing something, either a recreation or an interview subject or some old archival, and you're processing another layer of storytelling that, you know, you're going to have an emotional reaction to and you're going to have some sort of reaction to. Yeah. So it's so intimate. I mean, it's doing Crime Town is my, was my favorite thing I think I've ever done. It was such a great journey. Tell me about your jump into podcasting. Um, if I've got my timeline right, you finished making the jinx and then later that year, uh, Crime Town was announced. What drew you to podcasts and why the story? We had gotten through with the jinx. It was a long and arduous process. And I had married a woman from Providence, Rhode Island, and she was just a salt-of-the-earth person. I love her to death. You know, I had met her family, big Italian family. And so I knew this place, this magical place, where forgiveness reigns (laughs) over violence and everything else. And humor is so prevalent. I'd met Buddy through my father-in-law. And I had fantasized about making a scripted version of a TV series based on Providence, Rhode Island. But I knew that people would say it was you know, first of all, you know, it's it's provincial, who cares? Everybody's heard the buddy story. But I knew that was going to be a mountain to climb. So I just, you know, Zach and I just got a recorder and started recording stuff. We had been recording stuff pretty much months and months before we got into business with Gimlet and Alex, who was added value for sure. And um, And we just recognized right away that we had entered this really unique domain. Yeah, so I want to hear about how you put the show together because, you know, it feels like um like an epic. You know, you're talking about all these different characters, all these different places. Well, from the beginning, I knew that it would have to be a story told from the perspective of different characters that were mm. interweaving because everybody in Providence knows everybody, particularly in the world of crime and politics. So the process is very much going out and doing these really expansive interviews and looking for source material and studying the record to find out where these stories intersect. Mm. So the beautiful thing about a podcast or like Fargo, the TV series, is you can go pretty far afield as long as you bring people back to the central characters and their journeys. So for me, the central character obviously was Buddy, the mayor of Providence, and then these two organized crime figures, you know, who had been sort of strong arm and basically a hitman for the boss of Providence, the crime boss of Providence. This tape was played in court. The jury listened as Buddy told the city official not to cooperate with a federal investigation. I'm not saying those guys intimidate you. Don't be a volunteer for the U.S. government. No, I'm not. Yeah. I mean, no, I'm just, I'm just, I think they are. I'm just saying they're trying to put words in your mouth. This is just that U.S. Attorney's Office, or not U.S. Attorney, it's them trying to find an extortion because they've got a club membership out of them, which I don't even want. <laughs> it was a key piece of evidence because it was Buddy on tape not sounding very good. Okay, no, don't volunteer or anything. Okay. Well, yeah, you know? No problem. You know, all right. All right. Bye. And there were other people who, who weave through as well, but they're very big in this. There's a detective that goes through it, and there's Tony Fiore, the master thief, who goes through it as well. 
Tony would purposely go into a neighborhood that he knew well, and he would go down a dead-end street, knowing it was a dead-end street. I took Brian, I mean, he'll tell you, I took him down dead-end streets. You know, he followed me down a dead-end street, like, where am I going? Then I'd stop, and I'd just look at him and shake my head. He just wanted to see who pulled down the dead-end street with him. And all of a sudden, if he pulls down the dead-end street, and three of us pulled down, caught again. He said he was never so embarrassed in his life. Embarrassing, frustrating. Now you gotta worry about, did I just kill his plan? Because now he knows where the state police are watching him. Is he not gonna go through with what he's been looking at? Did I just ruin the whole thing by getting made? Pretty frustrating, aggravating. It does sort of revolve around these several lives. And that's how we structured it. And it was really about marking on a board where these stories intersect, breaking them off into episodes, finding out what's going on in the world around these stories that fertilize these stories. You know, what's happening in politics? What's happening with the banking system in Providence? Wasn't there a huge bank run? And all this other stuff. And building this sort you're right, it's, it is an epic. I mean, it's, it's sort of the Iliad in, in some ways. It's like this... You know, this, it's about a place and it's about all these people moving mm. in different directions that all sort of are moving in the same direction. So part of what's so interesting to me about the show is how the providence of Crimetown has kind of supplanted the actual city in my mind. <laughs> and I think that's probably the case for a bunch of Crimetown listeners, uh, especially if they haven't spent very much time in that place. Do you have a sense of how like yeah. the actual people of Providence feel about the podcast in general? I mean, they love it, but the mayor of Providence didn't like it. Too. I mean, he loved it, but, you know, he, he was like, you know, this is not who we are. And that's true. Yeah. It's a piece of who, who, who they are. It's not, it's not the entire story of the city. But I think people in Providence recognize that it's, it's a big part of the city. Yeah. You know, I mean, Buddy Cianci resurrected the city from the industrial downfall, and he put it on the map again. Yeah. And he did so by being sharp-elbowed and for all you know, intents and purposes, corrupt. Making corrupt deals with unions, making corrupt deals with whoever he needed to make corrupt deals with. The underlying moral imperative for him, I think, was to be the big man in Providence, but also the fallout of that is he actually raised the city. Hmm. He raised the esteem of the city. He rebuilt downtown. He did some incredible things, and that's the beauty of Providence. There's always incredible good with the incredible bad, hmm. you know? And there's tragedy with people and there's forgiveness with people that I think is truly unique. I was going to say that it's a very American story of a city, but I feel like many like cities have the story of like it's built on a lot of sin and uh, the present condition is trying to either cover it up or, or make up for it, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think there's there's a single city in the developed world that's or anywhere that did not have a bunch of eggs cracked in it, the process of making it the way it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the second season, you decided to shift over to Detroit. Tell me a little bit about that decision. Well, honestly, that was... I, I, I wanted the second season, because Providence was so dear to me, I wanted Zach to pick a, a city that he was excited about. Mm. And there were several. And Detroit really rose to a very high level because... We went on a little scouting mission there. They did, Drew and Zach, and and they they got access. Hmm. And then, you know, Kwame Kilpatrick being at the center of it and uh, John, who's one of the producers, being able to make contact with Kwame in prison and start this conversation, that was key. I was charged with RICO conspiracy. I'm absolutely innocent of that. 
and says no that. I made stupid decisions. I made ignorant decisions. I was arrogant and prideful in a lot of ways. And that's what I want people to understand. But I stand on the fact that the things that I was charged with in that courtroom, I am not guilty of. To be able to have the guy at the center of the story actually in a conversation from a federal prison Hmm. was a unique situation. So it sort of built itself around that. Uh, You use dramatic recreations a lot in your work. Uh, Why do you use them? And do you think recreations are essentially uh, an interpretation of historical reality? Yeah. Well, everything's an interpretation of historical reality (laughs) when you start editing stuff. I always tell my editors, you know, that every edit is kind of a little lie. You know, it's there's no way around it. You you cut somebody's words out of the middle or their interview in half, you're taking some stuff out and contextually you're changing the story. Yeah. So, you know, what we try to do is challenge ourselves here to keep to the truth as best we can while telling a good story. The reason to do recreations, honestly, is always because you don't have a way to tell the story that you can do without recreations. And the way I like to tell these stories is by putting the viewer or the listener in the story Hmm. as opposed to having people interviewed and bouncing interviews back and forth and everybody's talking retrospectively. So you're sitting in a room with a bunch of people talking about these events and you're getting their interpretations of these events. And then you're getting the, the storyteller's interpretation of these events as well because they're editing these interviews together. For me, I'd like to take that middle guy out as much as possible and I'd like to go to... Providence, Rhode Island, and sit in the grand jury hearing with all the witnesses for uh, for Buddy Cianci's grand jury when he, he attacked a guy with a fireplace log. You know, let the listener or the audience make their decisions on whether they hate or love people or whether they think people are guilty or they're innocent by listening to original source material. And then when it comes to recreating testimony, you're really, you know, short of having it recorded, which we used constantly when we had it, you're bringing the audience into that courtroom, and they're actually watching the trial with you. After the break, how far is too far when it comes to true crime media? The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. You know, Mark, I've been doing all this research on you for this episode, and there's a couple of write-ups that regard you as a true crime pioneer. Um, What's your relationship with true crime, and how is that reflected in your work? Well, when I was a kid, I I told my dad I wanted to be a cop. 
Then oh, really? I wanted to be a detective. <laughs> and then I wanted to go to John Jay. And he's like, that's enough. You're Jewish and you're going to go to a nice college that I send you to. <laughs> <laughs> Which is maybe a, a not PC thing to say. But anyway, I, you know, I've always been interested in investigations, not necessarily for the glory of solving things, but for the very, I mean, I used to rebuild motorcycles. So it's like, you know, for the, just the process hmm. of holding the pieces in your hand and trying to make them fit into the case and going through that process is actually more satisfying i think than getting to the end of it so i think yeah i start out in true crime i think capturing the freedmans is probably i may be wrong and i'm glad to be proved wrong but it may be the first found footage based crime documentary hmm. in the sense that most of it is home movies collected by david friedman the son of arnold and the brother jesse hmm. and that has been a theme Ever since we made that film, I, I find going back in time and being in the room with Jesse was just so fascinating, more, much more fascinating than people standing around talking about it. People are telling me, look what your father did to you. Look at the mess he got you into. And mommy believes them and I don't. I tell him to get lost. And mommy says, you're right. And I've lived with him for all my life. And look at all these horrible things he's done for me over 30 years, which is, amounts to nothing yeah. except this. Here's a very broad question um, that's been asked many times by many people, uh, but I'm still interested in hearing your thoughts about it. Why do you think people are so drawn to true crime? I've heard you say somewhere that, you know, it might have something to do with the allure of ambiguity. And while I find myself drawn to that as well, um, I also personally have a lot of moral ethical issues with how many true crime stories are presented. Well, I think Zach Pontier put it, one part of it very well. He said that true crime is the, the magnification of true life in a very dramatic way. It's everything that we think about that we don't understand, and it's to the nth degree. So we're looking to find some sort of explanation why? Why did this guy, why would he do this? Hmm. You know, we need to know. The world needs to make sense to people. Unfortunately, the world doesn't make sense. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't. And people are even more nonsensical. So, you know, a well-done true crime show makes sense of a, a world and gives you an, a clear answer. And I, I'm not for that. I'm with hmm. you, man. I, I feel like capturing the Freedmans was very ambiguous for a lot of people. Now, would, you know, would we have made it less ambiguous if we had definitive proof that the Friedman family was innocent or uh, proof that they were guilty? Of course, if we found something definitive. But if you don't find something definitive, it's not fair to make it up. <laughs> and I think that what you do is you stick to the factual history and you do your best to tell the story in an exciting way without breaking it. Hmm. And without getting into, hey, can you make that more exciting? Can the ending be more definitive? I have gotten on, you know, showrunner job calls with major studios when they're describing shows to me that I know are in my heart are a moral issue. Hmm. One which will, you know, probably come back to haunt me was the John Benet Ramsey piece that they got sued for. And I on the call I was like, You're gonna get sued. Where they recreated, you know, they they accused the brother of the murder, and they recreated the scene with a, a watermelon, I think it was. I didn't watch it because it was just, they pitched that on the phone, on a call with me, and I'm like, mm. you can't recreate something that didn't ha you don't know happened about a guy who you're not even talking to, you know? So you were also one of the earlier voices of true crime in the podcast space. 
and you were also one of the earlier teams to work with Gimlet Media. What was that experience like uh, working with Alex Bloomberg and that company during that moment? It was a great experience. That place was sort of a wide open field of creativity. I, I, I loved it. And mm. I was by far the oldest guy in the room. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was just like, it was like being reborn in some ways. I, it was a great place to work. And just the energy of just excitement was there. Mm. We, I think everybody there thought they were doing something extraordinary. And I think they were doing something extraordinary. And you look at those original shows and there there's some great shows in there. Crime Town was very unique. Uh, we came in with a little more bandwidth in a Hollywood sense than I think they had at Gimlet. They didn't under, I remember going to the meeting and saying, you know, we're making our deal. And Alex, I mentioned the word, the, you know, the letters IP and Alex is like, what's IP? So at that point, nobody had thought about the value of these things crossing platforms. Hmm. There wasn't really like, we weren't doing it. I don't think, I don't think anybody was doing it except for maybe me, because I wanted to make a TV series out of it hmm. for any other reason, but to just make something great. Uh, it wasn't unlimited budgets, but the budgets were fairly healthy, you mm. know, and and we all thought we were making great stuff. So I don't think that happens a lot in Hollywood, honestly. It's very rare. It's hard mm. because there's so much pressure um, when you're making television. There's budgetary pressures, obviously, which are needed because now you can't just spend everything. Yeah. But there also is pressure to adhere to things that studio executives see as successful. And it's been my whole life that I try to not do that, hmm. to do something off and different. It makes it ex extremely hard. When we went into Gimlet, often different was the name of the game. In April, Mark launched his own TV and podcast production company, Truth Media, through which he released his latest works, a nonfiction TV series called A Wilderness of Error and the show's companion podcast. Morally indefensible. On a fiscally responsible level, on a business level, I have gone forth and said, okay, we're making podcasts, hopefully to create IP for television and movies. Mm. But that's disingenuous at some level. I, I don't really feel that way emotionally. I love making podcasts. I love it. I feel like that is such a great creative opportunity. If it turns into IP, great. But not every show we're doing is an IP play. You know, for me, it's just about a creative outlet and working with creative people who are fresh yeah. and we're open to learning how to tell stories and push the boundaries. And in television, I'm doing that anyway, but it's... So these two things are sort of supporting each other. I'm not so sure that, if you know this, Nick, but it's hard to make money in podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have, you know, I'm very familiar with half the conversations that I have. You know, so without the television, it's gonna, it would be very difficult to run a company that we're running here you know the the television does does keep the lights on and and mm. it does and it's a great opportunity for people i've had you know podcast producers transfer into television shows as story producers and that's been a really good experience for me because you know they're fresh and we can start from scratch and visual storytelling can become one of their tools as opposed to somebody who comes in with their own ideas of what that is. And, hmm. you know, it's, it's a great incubator for storytelling. That's what I'm trying to create. Before we wrap up, I've got a couple of lightning round questions for you. First one, what's your favorite true crime show that you've consumed recently? You know, Tiger King, I must say it was fascinating. It was really fascinating. It was, I thought, well put together. But, you know, it was one of those looks into a world, and I don't think it was very um, sympathetic. Yeah. 
and I I had a problem with that. But as a piece of it was, I watched every episode. It was hard to put down. I'll tell you what I like. Um, what's the Ozark? I love Ozark. Mm. I thought Ozark was great. Did you like Ozark? I do like Ozark, but it's it's funny. It's like you bring in fiction to this, and it's like it's actually a really effective way to think about the genre. <laughs> oh yeah, that's how I. That's yeah. what Crime Town is, right? It's cinema for your ears. It's it's TV in your ears, mm. and that's how we try to construct it. I'm always thinking about it that way. Last question: What is your favorite true crime media of all time? Could be a book, a podcast, a TV show. I love Town. Mm. I thought it was masterful, and it was beautiful, and it was true. I love the movie M with mm. Peter Lorre. Uh, Fritz Lang? Fritz Lang. Yeah. I mean, I remember watching that and being like, wow. That's sort of the first police procedural that was ever made. You know, it's, a, mm. it's just basically looking for a child murderer. And it was just so well done. I, I was just blown away. You know, I, I always read this stuff because back, you know... Reading was the main, I mean, everything, there's so much true crime, Rockford Files when I was a kid, and, mm. you know, then Law and Order as I got older, but reading was a big part of it. So Ross McDonald, who's a, a Western author who wrote a series of books about Lou Archer that were made into a, movies with uh, Paul Newman. Mm. They're amazing because they really, one of the things I love to do is dig into the motives in the sense of who are the people involved in this story, and maybe that explains why they're doing the things they're doing. Mm. Dashiell Hammett, I thought a genius. Great uh, even Jim Thompson, <laughs> you know? I mean, that stuff's dark, but so great. Yeah, it's not like you're a big fan of noir in general. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am. All the Humphrey Bogart stuff, man. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I really appreciate this conversation. Absolutely. Anytime. Servant Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at alias.com slash servantofpod. The show is produced by Andrea Azuaje, Jessica Alpert, and John Parati at Rococo Punch. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Thanks to the team at Alias Studios, including Christian Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Christian Muller, and Leo G. Servant Pod is a production of Alias Studios. Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.